I am delighted and honored to share with you all this morning about the meaning of the Holy Day, Resurrection Sunday. I'm going to share with you in this sermon that I have carefully researched and prepared for us today that I have entitled, Easter, A Story of Love. By way of introduction, I want to reflect on some things in our culture and consider some questions about the rationale for Easter and also address some of the criticisms uh, that we get with regard to our belief and a man rising from the dead. And by way of introduction, I want to say something about the commercialization of the holiday and expressions of it in our culture that don't quite get at what Easter is all about. More importantly, what I want to do in the message today is take you into sacred scripture. And with this in mind, I want to offer this introduction to set the stage for later in my message where we begin to get into the scripture. And I highlight for you this story of love situating this story of love, the story of Easter, and the greater story of redemption. There's a bigger story than just a story of Easter, and you really need to understand the bigger story to get the story of Easter. The, The bigger story begins before the foundations of the world, so we got a lot of ground to cover today. And all of that said, would you please grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of Bibles in the back that you can jack. It's yours. Keep it. Or you could just, you know, get out your smartphone, pull up a Bible app, or just get your Google on and type in Gospel of John chapter 3. In a bit, I'm going to get to John chapter 3, and we'll survey some texts in the Gospel of John this morning. As you open a John on your phone or in a modern Bible, if you've got a, a printed version of the Bible in whatever con- contemporary language that you prefer, it is important for us to remember that with, with the Bible on your app or in a printed form in your hand, it's important to remind, remind ourselves that while I got this modern copy of it, and you might have a high-tech one on your phone, this is an ancient text. It's an ancient text. It's an old language it's ancient, and contrary to conspiracy theorists and fake news, this, this book has not changed over time. This is an ancient text, in fact, that has stood the test of time, but conspiracists and skeptics will often make the claim that the Bible hasn't stood the test of time, and boldly they will assert that it has changed like the childhood telephone game. You may recall playing this game as a kid. It starts at one end of the line, you say a little something, and then by the time it gets to the end, it is significantly changed, and everyone laughs after hearing the first person tell you what the original message was. This illustration often serves for conspiracists and skeptics uh, to, to use it as an illustration of the Bible and say, well, the Bible is just the same. You know, what it started with down here, it's been corrupted by the time it gets down here. You know, you got these scribes, right, and they've just changed what the message was as it went through the sands of time. And so we're told that we can't trust the scriptures, that they've been tampered with and distorted. Now the problem with this claim is that it lacks evidence. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts over the centuries that prove otherwise. And I have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars earning advanced degrees and traveling the world to look at these manuscripts and having the ability to read them. I asked you to turn to the Gospel of John, and and let me show you something up here in front. This is a a manuscript that we scholars refer to as P52. It is also known as the St. John Fragment. It's a part of a collection of thousands of fragments and documents, these known as the Rylands Papyri, that come from uh, North Africa and Greece, and they're held now in the University of Manchester in England. You can go see them for yourself. What you are looking at, this papyrus, dates back to the beginning of the second century, as early as 100. This fragment comes from the Gospel of John, and I put it in front of you so that you've got your modern copy, and you can see an ancient copy, and they haven't changed. The origins of these fragments that I'm talking about, found in Egypt, shows not only the text hasn't changed, but it also shows us the international expansion of Jesus' followers in the early centuries. In particular, it's worth noting where it expanded. Uh, where it expanded, let me emphasize again, this text comes from Egypt. Uh, the, 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 the early faith, the early followers of Jesus, this community spread from Israel into Egypt, Africa, Asia, the Middle East. It was thriving in Asia and Africa and the Middle East before it ever reached Europe. Now, I note this because often I hear the YouTube-educated skeptics saying Christianity is a product of Europe. Christianity is the white man's religion. 
Um, and that's a really easy way to dismiss folks, especially if you're white like me. You know, that is, that's the white man's religion. But the educated know much better. In fact, Africans paved the way for Christianity to make its way into the West. As Dr. John Mabidi has observed, Christianity in Africa is so old that it can be, rightly be described as an indigenous, traditional African religion. It, it, the faith was there long before the transatlantic slave trade, long before the message ever penetrated Europe. Now the point being is that the faith of the followers of Jesus today, they're, they're not following after folklore from Western white scribes who managed to convince the world that a Jewish man from the first century was God in the flesh. On the contrary, it is an ancient testimony of people who were there, and these manuscripts, unchanged in their basic telling of the facts, corroborate the faith for those who follow Jesus today. Our Bibles have not changed like this telephone game illustration. For starters, it was not transmitted as, an, as a mere oral account, but it was a written history from among those who were a part of the eyewitness community who were first the witnesses of this thing we call Easter. Today being Easter, it is fitting that we draw our attention to the ancient witnesses and we learn from them. Before starting to read the text that I ask you to turn to in the Gospel of John, it's fitting for us to consider some of the evidence for trusting what we read. You know, you could say, open the Bible, read it. All right, there, it's in the Bible, believe it. And some would say, well, that's just circular reasoning. You know, why should I believe it? Well, it's in the Bible. Well, why should I believe the Bible? Well, well, it's the Word of God. Well, how do you know it's the Word of God? Well, it's in the Bible. Well, that sounds really circular. Again, but that's not what I'm doing this morning, standing before you. I'm making appeals to actual evidence. I don't know about you, but I was raised around the church, and often I'd ask, you know, skeptical questions and whatnot, and I, I was fed things that really weren't answers. It was sort of like, hey, you just got to believe this. And that wasn't enough for me. I want to know, is this really true, though? And, you know, some would say, well, maybe you just believe it because that's how you were raised, and other people were raised differently, and so you just believe it because that's how you're raised. But that doesn't turn out to be evidence against the claims that are being made. You know, if I said 2 plus 2 is 4, and they said, well, your dad believed that. You were raised with 2 plus 2 being 4, but in other places, 2 plus 2 isn't 4. You'd say, that's just absurd. The fact that I was raised with it doesn't have any bearing on the claim itself. You have to deal with the evidence. So we begin with some evidence, and we begin with some sort of rationale that I can appeal to you this morning. Listen, when you want to know something about someone that you don't know, you have to ask someone who knows them. When you want to know about an event like the one that we celebrate in Easter, you have to ask someone who was there when it happened, or at least someone who knew someone first person who was there. And that's how history works. If we want to know, you know, who assassinated Abraham Lincoln or who, you know, what happened this day and, you know, this and that, you've got to dig into history. You've got to look at primary sources and personal subjects. So today being Easter, that's what I want to do. I want to take us into some texts, and I want to make some appeals to you to say, look, I, I think you should believe this stuff. I, I, I think this stuff really happened. Speaking of Easter, I don't know about you, but uh, this, this year is flying really, really fast. I said by way of introduction, I want to make some appeals to sort of skeptical claims and make a statement about the com commercialization of things. Uh, I, I just can't believe how quickly the stores filled up with candies and bunnies and eggs and whatnot. And, you know, tomorrow everything's going to be on the sale racks and I won't be able to fit this suit in a week because I'm going to get a ton of peeps. It's going to be awesome. I was uh, looking at Wallet Hub and trying to do some research on commercialization of Easter this year and some Easter habits. Look at this. In 2022, our nation will have spent $20.8 billion in total Easter-related spending, which is around 170 per person of those who are estimated to celebrate. Some $3 billion of those will have been spent on candy alone and over $6 billion on food, and over $3.4 billion on Easter clothes. Additionally, their research showed that some, get this, 91 million chocolate bunnies will be sold in the United States. They even did a study on how people eat bunnies, if they eat the feet first or the ears first, and they found that 81% of people eat the ears first. So, uh, you know, and I'll spare what other parts of the bunny get eaten by the other statistics in there, but 16 billion jelly beans are consumed on Easter. That is enough to circle the globe three times. That is cray-cray. They also did studies on parents, and I thought this was particularly funny. They found in polls that three in four parents plan to discuss eating candy in moderation with their kids. 
So in other words, one out of four uh, you know, parents are fun, and then five out of six are going to actually monitor it. So uh, only one out of six let their kids have some fun this day. Meanwhile, 81% of parents uh, confess to stealing candy from their kids. Jimmy Kimmel used to do this on Halloween. He would, they, they do a prank the next day on Halloween where you videotape your kids and you go and you show them all their loot is gone and the kids just freak out. It's super funny. Maybe we could get that going for Easter. But uh, all, all of this to say, Easter has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Uh, it, you know, so back to what I was saying about the ancient world and why it's important for us to go back to things ancient if we want to find out the meaning of what it is about. Again, this is P52. For sake of time, I'll spare you the historical deconstruction of the origins of bunnies and candies and eggs and whatnot. Suffice it to say, those are just products of our culture. And our culture, it's going to capitalize on anything for a buck. You know, I mean, that's just the way free markets work. And I love me some free markets. And, you know, I'm not hating on anyone making some money, but that, that's just what it's about. It's just people making money. And speaking of uh, capitalizing on things, skeptics and cultics also try to ideologically capitalize on things. They want to bank on unfounded claims about Easter. And so around the holiday, you're going to hear things like, well, Easter's pagan. Easter came from Ustar, and that's a pagan goddess in northern Europe. That's just simply not true. I know you saw it on YouTube, and it was really convincing, but it's just not true. Actually, the evidence shows that the word Easter comes from an old English word that comes from a translation of Dutch and German for the month that Easter corresponded to, the month of April, and, and that word is Joster. Uh, and yes, like many other months in European history, their months are named after pagan gods, and Easter was just the month for for April, and Jesus rose in April, and so you get that name. It's not a big deal. It's common knowledge that our months are named after pagans that we inherit from Western Europe culture. January is named after the Roman god Janus. March, my birthday month, uh, shout out to people born in March, uh, it's named after Mars, the Roman god of war. But, you know, it would be like, oh, Matt, you know, he's born and he's a pagan because he said March. That's just dumb. I mean, the fact that I, I, I mentioned something that happens to have a name that comes from some weird European pagan thing doesn't mean anything. I wear a heck of a lot of Nikes, but I don't worship the Greek goddess Nike. That's just a dumb argument. So then something happening to, to Jesus in a particular month that a particular culture that has a month named after some pagan thing, and they go, oh, that happened in Eoster, so we'll just call it Eoster, that, that, that doesn't show that that's where it comes from. Anyway, in terms of terms, Easter wasn't originally called Easter. That's, we just get, we inherit it that way, and, you know, whatever, it is what it is, but originally the ancients would have called it Pasha. Uh, Pasha comes from the biblical Greek, and, and, and it is a term from the Hebrew, Pesa. Pesa becomes Pasha, and those ancient words are used in reference to Passover. Jesus' uh, death happens around Passover. His resurrection happens in Passover. And so the ancient state is called it Pasha. Speaking of Pasha, there's a tradition that goes all the way back to the, to the ancient of days that we continue today known as the Pasha greeting. And I don't know about you, but my phone has been blowing up all morning with Christian friends doing the Pasha greeting on me. And it's the one day of the year where we do it. It goes a little something like, He is risen. And then you say back, he is risen indeed. And so if you didn't know, maybe you, you, know, you saw people doing that, your Facebook feed's blowing up, and you're like, man, what's going on? He is risen, and everyone's going, he is risen indeed. That goes all the way back. That's a part of the tradition. They say, Christos aniste, and they say, alathus aniste. That, that would have been the language at the time in Koine, he's risen, he's risen indeed. It's a special greeting that we have. And so, so let's, you know, let's rock it really quick, he is risen. All right, you get to do that all day long. And so it, it is just fun. It's a fun thing to do. I love doing it, especially with visitors on, on Easter Sunday. And speaking of visiting church, you know, it's, it's Easter. And so folks come to church. And we got different folks in the room who got different things going on. We got seekers who are believers. And they come on Easter and they're eager to hear about Jesus. In fact, you come every Sunday because you're a seeker. And you just love being here and hearing the Bible and stuff like that. And you know I'm going to bring it. I'm going to do some Bible stuff. So the room is filled with seekers. The room is filled with sentimentalists. Uh, those who come to church on Easter because it's nostalgic. You know, your, your mom, your dad, your granny used to drag you to church on the holidays. And so you show up on Easter. It's kind of sentimental. 
We've got seekers. We've got sentimentalists. We've got the superstitious who come on Easter. The superstitious are those who think, well, I'll go to church and then God's going to hook it up. Isn't, you know, I'm going to go and then he's going to hook it up. That's just superstition. That's not, not, not how it works. You should come to church, but not because you think, you know, you're going to get the supernatural hookup. We got seekers, sentimentalists, superstitious. We got supporters. Supporters came this morning because you're a friend. And you, you're just, I got a couple of supporters in the house. I won't name names and put any, you know, but it makes me happy. I invite friends, they show up. You're supporters. Shout out to the supporters. You came because of a friend. Then we have the singles who come because they need a friend, you know. So we got the singles who come, they're kind of scoping it out, seeing, you know, what the deal is. It's a good place to find somebody. Then we got the seclusionists. Those are the people, you've been in isolation the Rona got you, you know, locked up for a long time. You're like, I'm about to get out. I, I heard, you know, church is open. I'm going to come. You're a seclusionist. You came out. Shout out to the seclusionist. Finally, we got the skeptics. And those are the people that think church is just for little children and old people and dumb people. And so to the skeptics, you know, I always like to take the time on, on Easter to show, hey, no, no, no. There's actually reasons for why we believe what we believe. I showed you P52. Uh, let me show you one more, if I, if I may. Of course I may. It's on my PowerPoint. Codex Alexandrinus. This is actually held in the British Museum in London. Uh, every time I'm in London, I, I go and I stare at this thing. It's, a, it's absolutely incredible from the sands of time. This is a couple hundred years after P52. And so what's great is you can compare these texts that have gaps in between them, and you can see they haven't changed. Contrary to conspiracists, fake news, and Hollywood movies like Da Vinci Code, these texts weren't changing in the early years. What do you have in front of you? You can get your Google on. This is volume four, uh, folio 42, recto, of the Gospel of John. Unlike P52, this isn't just a, a fragment of John. This is like all of John. In fact, it's like all of the New Testament. Oh, by the way, it's also all of the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. This shows you that the Gospels were held together. This shows you that the, the Hebrew Bible was held with what we call the New Testament today, the apostolic writings. This was all one story. And you see this going back in the sands of time. They held these books together, and they said, this is telling us one story. And that brings us to the story of Easter and the bigger story that I was telling you about. It is a story of love. It is a, a story of hope. In fact, that's what we were you know, passing around this morning with our, our bulletins, the story of love. And that's what I want to talk about. I turned it into a little, uh, little meme here. I was texting all my friends it too, you know, tagging people on Facebook. But I wanna, well, let's talk about this story of love. I've given you some reasons why we can trust the text and why it hasn't changed. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to John. Find your way to chapter 3. This is one of the most uh, popular verses inside of the Bible, dare I say. John 3, 16. Look at the text. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. You see, the Easter story is a story of love. It's a story about how God so loved the world. In the original language in the text, it's hutos gar agapesen hatheos ton kosmon, which is to say, this is, this is how God loved the world. How did he love the world? He loved the world in the sending of the Son who comes from heaven to become a man that we refer to as the historical Jesus of Nazareth. And the historical accounts of his life are filled with these profound moments of love, especially love for his friends, those we refer to as his disciples. Would you move from John chapter 3 into John chapter 15 and just see his love that he has for his brothers? I, I, have, I have brothers, I have friends I've grown up with, and I have profound love for them. I see these men with Jesus, and I see the profound love that he has that, that, that's pure, it's unadulterated. Look, look at his heart here in John chapter 15. Draw, draw your eyes at, at verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends. Of course, Jesus here is alluding to what we have celebrated on Good Friday, the giving of his life for them. He died for them. He loved them. His life was the ultimate story of love. That said, his story is a part of a greater story, as I've said. 
And with that, let's get into this kind of greater story. We have managed to get into the third and the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John so that I could surface this theme of love and introduce to you a, you know, a story and give you some reasons for sort of listening and maybe giving it a shot. Maybe there could be something to this story. Hey, look, if you, if you found out that someone left you some money, you got a letter in the mail or you got an email that, you know, some uncle somewhere left you some money, and, and in a day like this where there's a whole lot of internet scams going on and whatever, you know, you might be a little bit skeptical. But what if it's real? What if that big load of money, that wad, is waiting? You know, shouldn't you look into it? Shouldn't you consider it at least? Likewise, as we come to this story, I would appeal to you, consider it. Think about it. The first point on your outline is the beginning of the story. It is life. The story begins with life. It begins with the God who creates. You turn from John to the very beginning. Look at how John begins his account. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the first point, life. John's story begins with life. It begins with God and creation. This is important to start the story of Jesus in this way, lest we tell the story like the man Jesus of history is just a man of history. On the contrary, John begins the story with God. And he says the historical figure was more than a historical figure. He was a divine figure. John starts the story with God, the giver of life, and then he ties Jesus to him to say they're, they're one and the same. Notice John, what John says of God here in the text. He speaks of the one called the Word. You see that? And, 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 and the Word is said to be with God and to be God. He describes the Word as a person. In the Greek, the word here is logos. Uh, logos in the Greek is, is used, the Hebrews used it at the time when they translated Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the creation account. And the creation account is filled with logos, logos, logos. John says logos, in the beginning, logos. Genesis, in the beginning, logos. John has personified the logos as divine. And this logos, this person, John says, the logos is the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 14. Again, I'm drawing my points from the text. I'm not making this stuff up. Verse 14, And the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw him. In the opening chapter, John speaks of God the Father, and he speaks of the Word, who is God the Son. As John continues, we see him speaking about the Holy Spirit. If you draw your eyes at verses uh, 33 and 34, there you see talk of the Spirit. This, of course, makes sense, because the early church uh, bore witness that there was a God who was three persons equally, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And because the Son can be with God and be God at the same time, He is God. He shares the same divine nature with the Father and the Spirit, so he, He's with God in that He eternally dwells with them, and He is God in that they share this union. There's one God. So then the story of Jesus begins with this triune God. Uh, so we know what we're talking about here. He is more than a man of history. He, the historical Jesus, is the Logos, the eternal word from eternity. This one person is both fully God and fully man. He's fully man. He becomes flesh, verse 14. He's fully God. He's one with the Father, one with the Spirit. John's language then wants to tell the story of Jesus by going back to the very beginning, the very beginning of it all. The story of Easter goes back to the very beginning, and he describes God giving life to creation. John describes God as, as loving the creation. In fact, elsewhere in John's writings, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John describes this God not merely as having love, but being love. Knowing that God is a communion of three persons, that totally makes sense. There's a love that the Father has for the Son, and the Son has for the Father, and the Spirit has for the Son, and the Son has for the Spirit, and the Spirit has for the Father. There, there's, there are a community, there are a family of love in the one God. So he not only has love, but he is love. And so whatever he does, is just it, it's out of this love. He gives life, and he does that out of love. The universe didn't earn its existence Planets weren't like, hey, bring me into existence. They didn't exist before that. They did nothing to warrant life. Life was just given to creation as a gift of love. That brings us to the second point on the outline. We move from life to love. Creation was made out of love and given life to reciprocate God's love. John chapter 1 is pulling from the language of Genesis. And in that sacred text, we see the love of God being poured out on creation, specifically on humanity. He makes humans in his own image. 
And, and so we're made to image this being who is love. And in the beginning, humans were commanded by God to walk in love. Love, the great command, a, a being who is love, created us in his image so that we would walk in love. Speaking of commands, this is fundamental to our love of God. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, he who loves me obeys me. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment in scripture, he said that it was to love God and to love our neighbor. And in answer to him, when he's citing in this answer, he cites Deuteronomy, he cites Leviticus, he's pulling from the scriptures. Look, the creator God is love and he made us to love. And, and that is a command that comes from him. So we have two points before us on the outline, life and love. And with these points, I'm, I'm telling you this grand story about God so you can situate the story of Easter in it. We love stories of love in our culture, so hopefully this story is one that resonates with you. We're all about stories of love. We have musicals on Broadway. We got the Sound of Music. We got the Phantom of the Opera singing in the rain. Mamma Mia, West Side Story, My Fair Lady. We're all about stories of love in our culture. We got novellas. We got love romance books. Romeo and Juliet, Gone with the Wind, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. She's got Emma, Sense and Sensibility. She just, she just throws out love stories. Jane Eyre. We got you know, all kinds of books that are, that are filled with these love stories. Of course, we got movies, Casablanca, It's a Wonderful Life, When Harry Met Sally, Officer and a Gentleman, Beauty and the Beast, Sleepless in Seattle, Mike Dolan's favorite love movie, Top Gun, You, uh, you, you Got Mail. Boomerang, it's not, it's not a love story, that's a war movie. We got Poetic Justice, Love Jones, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, Dances with Wolves. We'd be here all day. We just tell stories of love. We love stories of love. We got TV shows that are all about love. When I was a kid, I was tortured by those shows. My parents got divorced. I had to move in with my granny. My granny was all about those soap operas. I just wanted to watch DuckTales. Woo! and uh, Thundercats and G.I. Joe, maybe some Robotech, maybe some Voltron. Come on, Granny, come on, Granny. Nope, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, The Young and the Restless. And we didn't even, we didn't even have the remote control back then, so there was, no, there was no, and Granny sat right by the TV. You couldn't even try to switch it on. She'd fall asleep in the chair. You try to get some DuckTales, and she's up like, you know, you better put that back on. We are a culture that tells love stories. There's something, that, there's something that it hits with, and that something is, look, God is a God of love, and we were made in his image, and he wants us to know love. And so when we hear stories of love, we, something, something goes off in us. And John is telling us a story of love in this historical figure, Jesus, and who he is, and he backs off in the opening chapter to say, look, this story is a big story that began from the very, very, very beginning. Now, of course, John is going to give us more than, you know, uh, days of our lives. He, he, like, this is a story of love, to be sure, but it's also a story of conflict, darkness, dysfunction, death, oppression, politics, religion, justice, peace, reconciliation, and more. In today's sermon, as we're thinking about this, this story, I want to plead with you, I want to reason with you that, that it's a real story, and it's a story that not only that you, you can hear about, but it's one that you can actually enter into by repentance and faith. You can become a part of this story. You know, our culture is quite confused when it comes to love. We confuse love with infatuation, even lust. We reduce love to an emotion. We speak of love as something that you fall into. Oh man, I fell into love. As opposed to something that you commit to. We make love sound like it's a booby trap that you tripped on or, or like a prank, you know. And uh, Ashton Kutcher is going to jump out. Ah, I got you. You're in love now. We weave mythology into it with Cupid shooting arrows that drug you into love. These little obese babies busting caps on unsuspecting couples, making them fall in love. This is insane. We got love songs in our culture. Don't even get me started on the love songs in our culture. Uh, I have all kind of Jodeci songs that are running through my head. But anyway, so like what is love? What is love? There's a chapter inside of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to study it later today, it really breaks down what love is. And you'll notice when you read 1 Corinthians 13, it's all actions, it's all intentional, it's not emotional. A simple way of explaining or defining love is as follows. Listen, love is a commitment of the will to the good of the other person. Love is a commitment of the will to the good of the other person. Let me give you the, 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 a, the, a fuller quote. This comes from a, a philosopher, Jay. Uh, Bazutsky. Let, let, let me show you this. Look at this. Feelings change. You, you, you can't promise to have a feeling. 
So if love is a feeling, the marriage vow makes no sense at all. But the vow does make sense because love is not a feeling. What is it then? Love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. Of, of course, people who love each other will usually have strong feelings too, but you can, ha- you can have those feelings without having love. Love, let me repeat, is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. If people understood this biblical understanding of love, it would revolutionize our country and our culture. Uh, More importantly, it would transform our families and our relationships. This definition would undo the divorce culture of our day and the selfish living that places individual feelings over others and the true good of others. The forces that rip families apart and ruin friendships, those would absolutely be over if we actually were committed to the true good of others. And speaking of forces ripping things apart, Look back at the text of John chapter 1 where we left off. We left off with love and we left off with light. And where we left off, we're going to see. We left off in verse 4. Look at verse 5. We see forces of darkness that are set to rip things apart. John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness. What does it say? The darkness did not comprehend it. John 1 is a story of God's love and God giving life to us. It is a story also of unrequited love which leads humanity from light into darkness, from love to being lost. And that brings me to the next point. We move on our outline now to this idea of being lost. The story moves from life and love. You keep watching the story that's being told here, and it moves into lostness. John 1 is a story of God's love and giving of life. It's also a story, like I said, of unrequited love that brings about lostness. Verse 11, look at the text. It describes the aforementioned unrequited love. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. You, no doubt in your life you've been rejected. No doubt in your life you've shared with someone your care or concern or love and you've had it rejected. Whether it was just teenage love, hey, do you like me? You know, hey, you have your friend, hey, ask her if she likes me. Uh, you know, but look, if she doesn't, don't tell her that I like her right? Uh, But if she does, then tell her that I like her, right? What are we doing? We're trying to avoid being rejected. There's rejection in the story. Something is wrong with humanity. We're rejecting this loving giver of life. We did not receive what is given to us with thankfulness and open hearts. Instead, we reject and we close off our hearts to our Creator. John 1, again, it's pulling from Genesis. And you read Genesis, and you see how John's quoting masterfully this story to tie Easter to creation and to the fall and being lost. The darkness that John describes is explained in Genesis. It is the result of humanity rebelling against God. The Creator made order to the creation and gave humanity a way to live and a way to love. We saw John 14, 15, right? Those who who love God, obey God, but humanity chose to disobey God and lost that love and feeling. Oh, that love and feeling. Worse than that, we're, we're desperately lost deep within our nature. Humans have placed their own good over each other. We have eaten from forbidden trees to satiate our own desire instead of protecting the other. Rebellion against the one who gave us life has caused us death. Further rebellion against the one who designed life for love and gave the creation and relationships and everything order has brought disorder and selfishness to our hearts. And it is this disorder and death and darkness that the story of Jesus situates itself. To understand why he dies on Good Friday and rises up on Easter, you have to know this bigger story of, of God and giving life and love and how we're lost. In fact, we're, we're, we're born lost. We're born that way. We're, we're born that way. You, if you, I don't believe that. I think we're barn good. All right, come over to my house and babysit. Uh, you know, we have, we have some volunteer slots in the nursery over there. You, you watch kids. They're not born altruistic and good, like put two kids in a crib and put one toy in between them. Oh, you go first. No, you go first. No, you, no it's yours, you know. No, the, the, the kids' first words are mine and no. They're going to start fighting over it. They're vipers and little diapers. We're, we're born messed up that way. That, that's the whole thing. We need someone to rescue us from this condition. Without beginning, though, with God and, and love and humanity's mess, then when Jesus comes, it, it just doesn't make sense. Because you're like, why is he dying for me? I'm not that bad. What's the big deal? You know, you got to go back. you got to understand the story. Let me pause the story for a second and engage where, you know, some skepticism might come in. 
Why, why believe in God? Why believe any of this stuff? Why believe in a creation? Well, because the science of cosmology gives us every reason for believing in it. Uh, scientists tell us that the universe had a beginning, what is popularly referred to as the cosmological singularity or the Big Bang. Uh, some people hear about the Big Bang and they think it's evidence against God. It's actually some of the strongest evidence for God because of the fundamental law of cause and effect. Wherever we see effects, we see causes. We don't know of any causeless effects. The astrophysical evidence for what I'm describing today of there being a God and God giving life is absolutely profound. The implications of this are troubling to those who reject God's existence. Anthony Kenny of Oxford University urges a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that's absurd. Out of nothing, nothing comes. The great scientist Sir Arthur Eddington said, the beginning seems to present insuperable difficulties unless we agree to look on it as frankly supernatural. Yes, the evidence gives us reason to believe that there's a supernatural being, aka God, who did this, who did what I've been describing. Let me show you the rationale from the evidence that we have. Number one, we know everything that has a beginning has a cause. That's fundamental to science, law of cause and effect. Every effect has a cause. A beginning of creation is an effect, so it must have a cause. The universe had a beginning. This is the prevailing view among scientists. This theory of a primordial Big Bang is the explanation of the creation held by nearly all scientists. It best fits what we can observe. So it's not really unfathomable. It's actually quite reasonable to have belief in God. If everything that has a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, follow the logic, the universe had a cause. A lot of times people think when you come to church, you've got to check your brains at the door. We say at Delray Church, no, you've got to put your thinking cap on. Let me put the options in front of you. Either no one created something out of nothing, that's the atheist view, or someone created something, that's the theist view. Which is more reasonable? Nothing cannot produce something. Someone can make something. There must be a cause. And what sort of a cause would it be? Well, it stands to reason that the cause is whatever the universe is not, because prior to the universe coming into existence, there wasn't the stuff that the universe is made of. Follow me. The universe is physical, so whatever the cause of the universe is must be non-physical. The universe is non-personal, so the cause must be personal. Incidentally, that's what we believe about God. God is this non-physical, personal being who made the cosmos. From the universe, we see God as a personal agent, is both powerful and intelligent and loving. God's power is seen in the sheer expansiveness of the creation. Whatever being put this here has to be a, a big being. You know, if you're taking a walk and you see a little snake skin, you're like, oh, that was a little snake. You see, a, you know, a Anaconda from Ice Cube's movie, a big old snake skin, you're like, we better run because whoever left that there is really big. Look at the cosmos. Whoever made this is, is powerful. Whoever made this is intelligent. Look at the precision of the cosmos. Consider the constants in the cosmos. If the universe was expanding one millionth slower than what it is now, the temperature in the room would be 10,000 degrees. Consider the constant of gravity. If gravitational force were altered by one part in 10 to the 40, our sun would not exist, the moon would crash into the earth and fly out in space. If centrifugal force did not precisely balance gravitational force, nothing would be held in orbit and planets would crash into one another. I could go on and on and on to the break of break of dawn with the precision that we have in creation. Scientists have identified, in fact, 122 of these constants. Astrophysicist Hugh Ross has calculated the probability of these constants, all 122 of them, uh, that, that this could have just come into existence without an intelligent being behind them, like a mindless force of some random chance or something like this. Assuming that there are 10 to the 22 planets in the universe, a very large number, that's, that's one with 22 zeros following it, uh, he, Dr. Ross calculated the odds, and the answer is quite shocking. The chance is 10 to the 138. That is the chance. 10 with 138 zeros behind it that this universe came into existence without an intelligent cause. That is to say, by random chance. The odds are beyond imagination. These are, uh, there are an estimated, follow me, there are an estimated 10 to the 20 grains of sand on the beaches of the earth. Try to visualize 10 to the 20. All, little grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth. Think of different beaches you've been to and whatnot. You're like, oh, beaches, yeah. Right, yeah, beaches, right? And then, and, and then just imagine walking on the beach and picking up a little speck and, and putting a little red Sharpie on that one speck, right? And then chucking it, then chucking it back into the, into the beach, whatever beach you're imagining yourself on. Now, imagine blindfolding a person and telling them, 
uh, to go wherever they want on planet Earth, and they only get one, one shot. You got one shot not to blow it, okay? And you got to get that one piece of sand on any of the beaches of the world. That is one chance in 10 to the 20. That is one chance in 100 billion billion. That's precision. You, you're, you're never going to get that. If you think otherwise, that, that a blindfolded person can just travel the planet and with one shot grab that one little red piece of sand, then that is the ultimate leap of faith. That's the ultimate religion that you've got to check your brains at the door on. There, there's no way around this. Modern skeptics will try the subatomic particle physics and quantum theory and what have you, and it, it, it just doesn't work. A philosopher of science, Robert Delty, says there is no basis, no basis in ordinary quantum theory for the claim that the universe itself is uncaused, much less for the claim that it sprang into being uncaused from literally nothing. It's mathematically absurd to say that the universe came into existence without a designer, and the logic based on the science is absolutely airtight. Every design has a designer. Try to prove that wrong. The universe and life are a highly complex design. Therefore, the universe and life have a designer. There's a design, there's order. A thousand monkeys sitting on a typewriter for millions and millions of years are never going to produce Hamlet. But Shakespeare did it in one try. He's an intelligent person. How much more for an intelligent, infinite God to make a universe? It's not a big deal. How can you believe that? I, how can you not believe that? The cosmos shows God's power and intelligence. It shows, it shows more than his power and intelligence. It shows his love. It shows his love. Listen, look at the precision of the cosmos. That precision is there so that we have earth and we have humans on earth. Elon Musk can run around with his homies and try to go to Mars and buy Twitter and do whatever else they got going on. But look, we got life popping on planet earth. Robert Jastrow, the great NASA scientist, observed science itself has proven as a hard fact that the universe was made, was, was designed for man to live in it. It's a very theistic result. Did you know that the thickness of the Earth's crust, if it was greater just a little bit than it is now, too much oxygen would be transferred to the crust to support life? If it were thinner just by a little bit, volcanic and tectonic activity would too be great for there to be human life. The very nature of water it's, it's so vital to our existence, and it points to God. Unique among the molecules, water is lighter in its solid form than in its liquid form, and that's why ice floats. If it didn't float, the oceans would freeze over from the bottom, and the earth would be covered in solid ice, and we'd all be dead. That's precision. Any one of the laws of physics can be described as a function of the velocity of light, C equals 186,000 miles slash seconds. Therefore, even the slightest variation in the speed of light would alter all other constants and preclude the possibility of life on Earth. Clearly, someone gave us life. <laughs> Clearly, someone gave us life. Now, that's the first point on the outline. And all of this cosmological precision is to make a point to you, to appeal to you. Look, we're not talking crazy stuff. We're not talking about unicorns and care bears and stuff like that. This Jesus thing, there's reasons for believing this stuff. There's clearly a supernatural being that loves this planet and gave life to humanity. Science supports what the Bible is telling us about life and about love. And speaking of science, this is just based on observable phenomenon. That's how science works. You observe phenomenon, you come up with hypotheses, and you test them. And talking about observable phenomenon, just look at us. We're clearly lost. My third point. We're clearly a mess. Let's be real. How did the week go for you? Perfect? Got any regrets? Got any stresses? Got any anxieties? We're clearly a mess. Well, uh, just look at human history. Oh, we, uh, just look at the nations. L look at Ukraine. I don't know. Just, just, just look at what's going on all around us. L look again at history. We're clearly alienated from God. We don't know, you know, there's God and he's love and he does all this stuff, but we clearly don't know him. Look at, look at all the religions that have been made up in the world. I have dictionaries of religions. I've studied the world religions in grad school to, to, from the, the whole shebang. I mean, we've got all kinds of religions. And people are manufacturing more now as we speak. And, 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 and while the bumper sticker coexist is really PC and, you, you know, that's really nice, and I welcome people coexisting in the sense of being tolerant with different views and free speech, 
But let us not mistake tolerance for truth. Things that contradict each other cannot all be true. Now, they can all be wrong, but only one can be right, and that is the nature of truth. Two plus two is four, and all other numbers in answer to that question are wrong. Speaking of the truth, the world is filled with very little of it. There are lies all around us, deceptions all around us. The earth is filled with darkness and, and, and war and hatred and evil. Just yesterday, there was a homicide. Yesterday in my city, Inglewood, there was a homicide. A young man found dead with a single slug in his upper torso. And that is the third fatal shooting this month in my city. Three murders in the fourth month of the year in just one city. Throughout the cities of the world, the countries of the world, there's, there's murder, there's execution. Babies aren't even safe in the womb. The elderly aren't even safe in convalescent homes. With all of this fine-tuning, molecules, mountains, clouds, cliffs, planets, prairies, with all of this fine-tuning, why are humans such a mess? Because there's a big difference between men and mountains. There's a big difference between men and molecules. We have free will. Leaves don't decide to fall. Humans do. The grass has no decision over what it feeds itself. We do. Hence, my suit's a little tight this morning. We make a decision. We make that decision. You think about it. Your weight depends entirely on what you put in this hole right here. You're responsible for your size. We have a free will. The relationship between a cloud and another cloud is mindless. Whereas the relationship between humans... Oh, that's mindful. And with the gift of our minds, we have rebelled against our Creator, and we haven't lived for the good of others. We saw that's what love is. And the gift of the free will that was given to us so that we could make decisions to love our fellow man and to worship God, it's all become lost. We become fallen, confused, depraved, and, and to boot, we become proud. So you can't tell me. And that's a dangerous place to be. Excusing ourselves from error. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he explained that even though God is evident from the creation, and you know the ancients studied cosmology in the same way that moderns do. We got telescopes and we know a little more, but the Apostle Paul knew, knew some cosmology. He said, you look at the cosmology, you know God's real. And yet there's something that we stubbornly don't want to give props to him. We don't want to live for him. We don't want him telling us what to do. Earlier, I quoted the philosopher, uh, Dr. Bazuski about the definition of love, and he's got this insight into how we dismiss God. He says, it's a, the funny thing about us human beings, not many of us doubt God's existence and then start sinning. Most of us sin, and then we start doubting his existence. Because then we've got to cover it up. Because otherwise, I have to confess, I, I have to change, I've got to be held accountable. But, you know, covering it up. And that goes back to the beginning. That's the first who rebelled against God. That's exactly what they did. They covered up. In my own life, that's just so true. My sin put me in so many places of denial. I, I have people in this room who've known me since I was a, a boy and the list of things dumb that I have done and the ways that I have shook my fist at God, the ways that I, I ran from him and wanted nothing to do with him and and, and, and the ways that I self-medicated in order to come up with excuses of why I didn't have to live for him. But thankfully, there were people in my life who pursued me and shared with me about this God of love and this great story. And, and that even though I had rebelled against the one who had given me life, and even though I deserved to be punished for this rebellion, that, that this Lord was a Lord of promise who would welcome me and would forgive me. That brings me to the next point. We moved from life and love to being lost to the Lord. We took a long pause in the science. Let's get back to the story. Get back to John. Please turn to John chapter 7. Jesus the Lord, he comes into our mess. He becomes a human. He dies the death that we deserve. That, that story of him dying is a part of this greater story. We owed God a debt that we could not pay. And so Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. He didn't owe the debt because he unlike me, didn't run around doing goofball stuff. He didn't sin against holy God. He's fully man. He lived the perfect life. He's fully God. It's his prerogative to forgive. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an absolutely incredible account. And in this account, in this story, God keeps intervening in human history and showing up and making covenants with people. A covenant is a, is a word for a promise. And we think of the great historic figures like Abraham and David, 
I ask you to turn to John chapter 7. If you look quickly at verse 42, you see the reference there to, to David. The Christ is to come from the descendants of David. In other words, the story that's being told with the historical Jesus is a story about these promises of God. He made promises to people before that he's going to make good on. In the beginning, he promised Eve that he would send one through the seed of the woman that would crush the darkness. In the beginning, he told Abraham that he, he would m make him the, the father of promise and he would send one through his seed who would reverse the fall and the darkness. And he told David, John 7, 42 in front of you, that he would send one who would overthrow the kingdom of darkness and be the king of light. Move from John chapter 7 into chapter 8 quickly, and you see in verses 56, 57, and 58 references there to Abraham. The whole chapter, in fact, is about Abraham. To say, look, Jesus is a part of the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. It's a part of this story of God's covenants. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Look at it, John 8, 56. And he saw it and was glad. You're not 50 years old, they said to him. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego and me. Which is, a, which is a line for, I, I'm God. He's, he's putting his divine credentials on the table. I'm the one of the covenants. I'm the prophesied one. I'm the one that Abraham longed to see. Often I hear skeptics say, well, if, 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 if Jesus is your God, what about all the people before Jesus? You go, are you serious right now? You're serious right now. You, you know that Jesus is a part of the story that goes back to the very beginning. It wasn't like some new religion that came in the first century. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of Moses. He's the God of David. It begins with the creation story. If you walked into a Lord of the Rings nerd party or a Star Wars nerd party or Rocky movie party, I like to do those. If you walked in six hours late, like, who's that guy? You know, that guy's not that guy. You go, you should probably sit down and start from the beginning so you know what's going on before you critique. This isn't something new. It's a, it's a part of this, this story. And so turn to John 19 quickly. When you see him in John 19 being beaten and, and, and mocked, John 19, 11 reminds, the, reminds us that he's in control of it. Look at verse 11 of John 19. Everything that's going on is according to plan. The covenants, everything, he's doing it all. And why is he doing it all? Because he wants to rescue us from being lost. And so as he hangs on the cross, he, he cries out these words, It is finished. It's finished. It's done. I made the payment. It went through. You, you know, I, I shared with you earlier, if you found out that maybe someone left you some money, you know, you should probably you know, just give it a shot. You know, maybe it's true. You know, maybe you should look into it. When those numbers show up in your account, oh, yeah, that was real. Likewise, there's something spiritually that takes place in salvation. The, the stuff that's in our account, our sin, our guilt, our shame, it all gets wiped out and we get his deposit in ours, his perfect life. And that leads me to the final point on your outline, the point of liberty and grace changing everything. That's grace. If, someone, if you owed a debt to someone and they canceled your debt, you'd say, oh, that was merciful of them. I owed you money, I couldn't pay it, you said it's cool, I got you, and zeroed it out. That would be mercy, right? If, if, if you were driving to church a little fast this morning and the one time pulled you over, you deserve a ticket for speeding. I said, you know what, you look fresh in your Easter outfit, it's cool, don't do it again, you know, and you go on your way. You were given mercy, you deserved the ticket and you didn't get it. But if the officer said, not only am I not going to give you a ticket, but he pulled out his wallet and gave you a $100 bill, you go, wait, not only did I not get what I did deserve, a ticket, but you gave me something that I didn't deserve. That's what we call grace. And that, that's why it's crazy when men want to argue about God or when men want to deny that Jesus is God or that he's the way. Or they come up with emotional objections about how he can't be the way because then that would make you sad about someone. And all these, no, no, like he's the way. Like he's the only one who died and he's the only one who could do it. God didn't send a third party to clean up our mess. That's what's so crazy about it because that's how I roll. I'll, I'll send someone else to go clean it up. He came himself. And he gave us grace. It has been said that grace could be an acronym for, follow me, G-R-A-C-E, getting redemption at Christ's expense. He's the one who paid it for us. In John 8, 36, we read, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Grace frees you of the debt, 
And grace changes you that your life would be different. And so in resurrection, that is showing us that what went into our account, it didn't bounce. It's, it, it's there. He conquered death itself. The penalty of rebelling against the giver of life is death. And so he came and conquered death to say, look, no, no, this is, this is really real. If you still have John in front of you, you go to chapter 20 and you see Thomas. And Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe all this stuff about you and whatever. You know, I'm not going to believe it unless I touch you. And Jesus says, come, touch me. Touch me and see. He doesn't say, check your brains at the door. Just believe this crazy stuff. Don't ask questions. No, God's big enough and real enough. You can ask questions and he has answers. And Thomas's life was transformed by that grace. Look at verse 28 of the chapter. My Lord and my God. He was transformed by this God who, who gives grace. Friends, this isn't a myth. This isn't man-made. This is not a, a story that has changed over time. I've showed you the archaeological data. I've showed you manuscripts. I, I've, I've given you reasons for the existence of God. If, if believing someone dead from the rising up is unfathomable to you, again, you go back to the cosmological data. If God can create a universe so precise and, 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 and so wondrous and can't raise someone from the dead? What sort of a figment of your own imagination God do you have in your mind? Of course he can raise from the dead. And because he's love, of course he will. He's going to rescue us. He has come to rescue you here this morning through this story that I'm inviting you not only to believe but to enter, to come to him and ask for his forgiveness, to come to him and be transformed by his grace to come to him and to give your life to him. John 21, in front of you, a final verse to note. In verse 18, Jesus prophesies to Peter, Peter's martyrdom, Peter's death. They gave up everything to follow Jesus, is what you have to understand. That's the wild thing about this book. You know, people will say, history is written by the winners. History is his story. You can't trust it. And, you know, you go, yeah, exactly. You do know these books were written by the losers. They got their heads chopped off. They got impaled. They got slaughtered for hundreds of years. You do know that, right? As Christianity spread into Africa and Asia, as it spread into Europe, as it spread around the world, they were slaughtered for hundreds of years for it. Even today, you do know, you do know that Christians this morning, right now, are in underground in places in the world because if they, if they let their governments know that they're celebrating the risen one from Jerusalem, they will be killed for it. I have friends behind enemy lines who risk their lives for this. I think of the great uh, martyr in contemporary times in, in, in 1949, and he wrote this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a very, 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 very powerful line from his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Give your life to the Lord. Even if you lose it, it it's totally worth it. Again, I know there's, there's, there's people here for different reasons, the sentimentalists. Say, you know, I'm going to go because, you know, mama dragged me, the superstitious. I'm going to go so God will, you know, help me with this thing I got going on. The supporters, you came because I'm your friend and I, I appreciate that. That's great. You came, maybe you're single looking for someone or whatever. You came, you know, for various reasons. But while I have your attention and before I close in prayer, seriously, like this is the greatest thing that you could do on Easter is give your life to the Lord and ask him to forgive you, and watch how he changes you and liberates you. This story of life, love, lostness, the Lord, and liberty, it's truly a transforming message. So we're going to sing to him. That's how we're going to close the service. We've got a couple of songs. We're going to have communion. We actually got communion tables. For those of you who are new, we've been doing the, uh, the Rona communion uh, for a long time now, these little sealed ones. So we have communion up in the front. The worship team's going to sing. You can come forward, have a piece of bread, a little cracker, as we remember the one who was broken for us, and we come and, and together we confess our sin and we say, Lord, forgive us. Our sins are, are, are many and temptations are everywhere. Hold fast to him. He loves you. He is good. Let's pray. We'll sing. We'll wrap it up. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for life. We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. We thank you that you have given us reason to trust you. We thank you for the invitation to come and trust. We thank you for our friends and family in the room and, and beyond for blessing us with so many things. In particular, as we watch what's going on in Ukraine and 
we're, we're, we're buying millions of chocolate bunnies and, and, and wrapping jelly beans around the earth, and there's people who are dying. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. And we confess that we don't pause often enough to thank you. But we thank you that in the gospel, even though we are thankless, you offer forgiveness to us. And so we thank you for the redemption of your son who has come, this great story of love. And we pray this and now offer these songs in Christ's name. Amen.